On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. From this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the court of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zakor, the son of Mathaniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spend the nights outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. 
From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon the king of Israel sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first root. Remember me with favor, my God. You've got that Bible. Um, do keep it open. We're going to be referring to the passage throughout. And we are in our final sermon in our series of Nehemiah. It's a series we've called Rebuild. And it's not the ending one would have expected, reading the story, is it? It's not the ending. It's not happily ever after. We've got to the end of our uh, series, the end of this book, what you would hope would be the climax of the story. And what have we got? We've got the people who have turned away from God. And we've got Nehemiah at the end, not giving thanks, uh, not giving praise to God for all that's happened but sort of in a state of desperation. He has to pray, remember me, God, for my good. And if we've been following Nehemiah over the last few months, if you've been reading it and seeing how the story has progressed, it feels like a very disappointing ending. Let me give you a recap of the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is the story of the Israelites, God's people, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, or the walls in Jerusalem. The temple has already been um, rebuilt by that point, but it's all part of the same time in history. Uh, so Jerusalem is the ancient city. It's the center of religious life. And previously to Nehemiah happening, that the, the city has been exposed, its walls have been broken, its gates burned with fire. And Nehemiah is an Israelite who is, uh, who's been in the Persian capital. He's been working for the king, Artaxerxes, and he has come with the authority of the Persian Empire to come and rebuild Jerusalem's walls. He's gathered them together. He started a building project. And despite opposition within and without, they got the job done. 52 days, it says, they managed to get the wall um, together. But Nehemiah didn't stop there because he's concerned not just about the, the physical structures of the walls of the city, but also about their spiritual well-being. 
So not only are walls built, but there are various religious ceremonies where the people rededicate themselves to the Lord. And we've called this sermon series Rebuild because we've kind of, as a church, been trying to take cues from the book of Nehemiah. We're trying to rebuild our church in various ways in the wake of changes that have happened here, in the wake of COVID and that's effects on us. And so we've talked about serving the church just like Nehemiah did, working together like the people did to build the walls. We've also talked about spiritual restoration. We've followed the people as they've confessed their sins, as they've focused their attention on the Bible, as they've committed to obedience. And now we come to the end, chapter 13. And it's a bit of a strange way to end the story, isn't it? It's a bit anticlimactic. And you sort of think, whoever wrote and edited Nehemiah, probably not, not going to get a job in screenwriting for films. Like, why would you end it here? End at chapter 12, surely. So in chapter 12, the, the finished wall is dedicated before God. And service in the temple gets up and running finally. That's, that's a good time to, to, to end the story. End on a good note. You know, fade to black, roll credits. That's where you could end the story. But that's not how it happens. The Bible's a bit more realistic than that. And so the Lord Jesus and his wisdom has given us this book of Nehemiah, and he's given it to us with the ending that we have. So we need to look a little bit closer. We need to see what it says and what the Lord might be teaching us through it. So first of all, the danger of decline. The danger of decline. Chapter 13 is a bit like an epilogue really, to the story. So most of the story has taken place over 12 years where Nehemiah has been um, with the people. But then if you look down at verse 6 of chapter 13, it says, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. Dramatic, isn't it? In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for 12 years. He then gets called back to Persia. And after a period of time, we don't know how long it is, years presumably, he comes back again to Jerusalem. And what does he find? He finds that all the hard work he's been doing, all the spiritual restoration of the people has been undone. The wall is fine, but the people are in ruins spiritually. And we see how serious it is because of the promises that the people um, in, in Nehemiah's day, the, the Israelites, the promises they had made. So back in chapter 10, Adam led us through that passage. They made promises regarding three areas, the temple, the Sabbath, and marriage. So in chapter 10, verse 30, they say this, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Verse 31 of chapter 10, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Verse 39 of chapter 10, the people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms. And the verse ends, we will not neglect the house of our God. And by the time Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem to see what is happened to the city, the people have pretty much broken every promise they've made. And this chapter shows us, 
First is with the temple. Look at verse 10. So food donations to the temple staff have stopped. So that means all those who work in the temple can't eat. And so they have to leave their services, their posts, and go and work in fields just to put bread on the table. Worse than that, verse 5, one of the storerooms where the food donations would be kept has been converted into a living space for Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah, chapter 4? One of the enemies of the people who was taunting the Israelites, taunting the city, going to attack it. Well, Tobiah somehow has wormed his way into the city through connections. He's thought he can gain some power by getting a penthouse apartment in the city center. And so there he is right in the temple. And the holiness of the temple has been desecrated. What is Tobiah doing there? You'll notice later in the chapter that Sanballat turns up as well. Sanballat was another enemy of the um, Jewish people. And yet he, through intermarriage, his daughter is married into the line of the high priests. So he's got some power there. The second promise was regarding the Sabbath. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys. God had created the Sabbath day as a day of rest from work and from commerce. It was meant to be a holy day, a chance to cease work, to trust in God's provision, and and to use that time to focus on God and worship him. What has happened? The merchants have come in on the Sabbath day. They've been allowed in, and the Israelites are buying stuff. The third promise broken is regarding intermarriage. Look at verses 23 to 24. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, as Edem said a few weeks ago, the deal with intermarriage and its prohibition was not so much um, an issue of race as it was about belief. Now, there was provision for Israelites to marry non-Israelites in the Old Testament. We think of Ruth, for example, who was from Moab. She's called a Moabitess. She comes into the nation. In fact, she's pride of place in the ancestry of King David and King Jesus. But the thing with Ruth was, it wasn't so much that she was from Moab, but she had chosen to follow the God of Israel. And this was the point behind the prohibition of marriage with people from other countries. Foreign people worshipped foreign gods. And Israel had to maintain spiritual purity. They could not compromise on their worship of the Lord. They couldn't compromise, but they had compromised. And look at the results, verse 24. The result of the intermarriage is that half of the children couldn't speak the Judean language. They couldn't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. What does that mean? Well, if you don't speak the language of Judah, you can't understand what the Bible says. You don't know how to worship God. In fact, you can't even know God. You don't have the categories in your language to understand who he is. Instead, they know um, Moab uh, language or Ashdodite language. But of course, language is, is wrapped up with culture and it's wrapped up with belief and religion. So it essentially means for those children who didn't speak Judean or Hebrew, um, they were essentially led into worshipping other gods. So you do notice that in a, in a generation you could have a situation where the majority of the people don't even know who God is. They've gone and turned completely to idolatry. This is serious. 
So what have we got? By the end of the chapter, we've got the temple, the Sabbath, marriage. One by one, the people have broken their promises. And reading a chapter like this, it's, it seems to color the way we look at previous chapters, right? We remember those chapters where they, the people committed to God, made promises. And you think about that in light of this, and the kind of cynic takes over, doesn't it? All those tears, hearing the Bible read, all those promises made, all those, all those long prayers of confession. You sort of think, what were they worth? Were they even genuine? And you may have asked such questions of people you know, other Christians you know. You may have even asked questions, the same questions of yourself. Now, it would be easy to be a cynic, wouldn't it? But the truth is actually a little bit more complicated and messy. You see, in those earlier chapters where the people dedicate themselves to God, there's nothing in them that would make us think they were being insincere. The reality is that there is always sin in our hearts, isn't there? And it makes us inconsistent. It warps even our best intentions. But if there's one lesson we need to learn from this chapter, it's this. We are never beyond spiritual decline. Not beyond us. It wasn't beyond them, despite all their promises, all their intentions. We are never beyond turning away from Jesus, breaking our commitments. That's true of our families. That's true of our culture. And that's true even of this church. Dave's going to put a slide on um, to show that little map and uh, a picture of a church there. So just the other side of Whitworth Park, very close to where we are today, next to St. Mary's Hospital, if you know where that is, there used to be a huge church building called the Union Chapel. And the Union Chapel was built in 1873. It had a capacity of at least hundreds, by all accounts, thousands of people would go. It was a grand, beautiful church. It taught the good news about Jesus faithfully. It was a kind of mega church of its day. Lots of people would go. But over time, it went into decline. Numbers dwindled. Eventually, the building was bought by St. Mary's Hospital, and it was demolished. You wouldn't even know it was there or had ever been there today. A healthy, gospel-preaching church eventually went into decline. Now, we're trying to rebuild as a church at the moment. We've used that language a lot over the last couple of months. But it makes you wonder, it makes me wonder, where will Grace Church be in one year, 10 years, 50 years' time? Will we be still following Jesus? Will we be living as he has called us to, holding the line on issues that are actually quite clear in the Bible, but the culture will give us pushback on them. And of course, when we talk about the church, it sounds a bit abstract, doesn't it? But the church is made of individuals. What about us personally? What about our families? Where will we be? After this sermon, we're going to sing a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a wonderful hymn, and it's got that wonderful line, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love.
Do we feel that we are prone to wander? Are we aware of the danger of spiritual decline? Because we face it. We face it. Well, what can we do about it then? Secondly, the need for reformation. So Nehemiah comes back, doesn't he? He sees all this stuff going on, and he acts decisively. It says, verse 8, that he's angry. He's angry, and he's like a whirlwind. He sweeps through the city, trying to affect change. So he goes to the temple. He throws out Tobiah, uh, throws out all his furniture. It's as if you can almost hear the sound of the breaking of wooden armchairs and tables smashing outside the uh, temple courts. So much for the penthouse apartment. He's equally uncompromising when it comes to the Sabbath. So verse 17, he confronts the leadership head on. He shuts the city gates on Friday night before the Sabbath. He stations guards. He sends the merchants away. Perhaps his fiercest reprisals, though, are for those who were engaged in intermarriage. Look at verse 25. He curses them. He beats some of them. He pulls out their hair. Now, one infamous celebrity pastor in the U.S., famously preached on this passage about 10 or 15 years ago. And he said that he'd love to be like Nehemiah. He said that he'd love to go Old Testament on some people in his church. And he'd do so were it not for the risk of appearing on the local news station. And hearing statements like that, they leave a bit of a bad taste in our mouths, don't they? But they also raise questions about what we should think of Nehemiah here. What's going on? Now, it's worth noting that the cursing and the physical reprisals are actually judicial sentences. Okay? It's not like Nehemiah just flipped and in a fit of rage became really violent. Back in chapter 10, verse 29, the people put themselves, it says, under an oath and a curse to obey the law. If they have broken the oath, then they leave themselves, therefore, open to the penalties. And so what they've received here, though it may seem harsh to us, would have probably been expected and in line with the norms of the day. We must also remember that um, Nehemiah acts on behalf of the state, and Israel was a theocracy. Religion and state were mixed together, so these were judicial penalties. So therefore, when we hear people looking at Nehemiah here and, and using it to kind of baptize their lust for violence, it's entirely inappropriate. Entirely inappropriate. But is it, is it possible that Nehemiah went too far? It's possible. It's possible. But overall, in this chapter, he's pictured as a godly leader, passionate about the people's fidelity to God and his laws. And the truth is, in times of decline, churches need people with the passion of Nehemiah. So what will this look like for us? Well, passion doesn't have to be expressed in particularly dramatic ways. You don't have to be a dynamic personality to affect change. Reform can come through quite low-key acts, quite gentle acts. Imagine you see a Christian friend stuck in some sort of pattern of of unhealthy behavior or sin. Maybe they haven't realized what they're doing, but you can notice it. You can see the damage it's doing. Reform 
might mean just plucking up the courage to go and speak to them. Just say, hey, you know, I've noticed that in these sorts of situations, you seem to be behaving like this. I, I might have got it wrong, but can we chat about it? That's reform. Reform might mean that you restart your family prayer times after they've kind of dropped off in the busyness of life. Reform might mean that if you notice blind spots in our church and its culture, and I'm sure we've got a few, you just come and speak to us as leaders and raise it with us. That's reform. Now, all these things, it's not throwing furniture out a window, but little acts of reformation like that, they keep us from spiritual drift. And the important thing is that these reforms come from a passion, a passion for the honor of God and the purity of his people. That's what drove Nehemiah. But all this leads to another question, doesn't it? What's going to keep us going? How do we not lose heart? You you finish reading this chapter, and you just get this sense that Nehemiah is frustrated and exasperated, maybe tired. That's understandable, isn't it? Okay, you know, great. In this chapter, Nehemiah, he was around. He was able to put things in place to fix some of what had been broken. But how long would that last? You know, he, he makes these people in verse 25 take oaths, but they've already shown they've not got a great track record in keeping promises. How long is that going to last? Nehemiah isn't going to be around forever. But are his reforms futile? What about ours? Are our efforts at reform futile as well? I mean, it's never going to be done, is it? There's always going to be that danger of decline. But what's going to keep us going? Well, finally then, help from Jesus. Now, I wish I could say that the only reason that Nehemiah um, was facing this decline in the people was because it was the time before Jesus. And that this side of the cross and the resurrection, we don't need to worry about those sorts of things. But we know that's not true, don't we? It's evident to us. And the New Testament kind of sets our expectations. I mean, just read something like Galatians. Paul gets just as exasperated with the Galatian church as Nehemiah does with the Israelites of his day. What about Jesus himself? You know, in Revelation 3, um, Jesus describes himself. He's, he's writing to, he's speaking to a church in Laodicea, and he pictures himself standing outside his own church, knocking on the door, wondering whether he's going to get let in or not. Even Jesus knows that churches can be in decline. So we shouldn't distance ourselves too much from the Israelites of Nehemiah's day. But nevertheless, as we come to the end of this series in Nehemiah, as we seek to keep on rebuilding, we do have hope. And we find in the Lord Jesus power and energy to keep going. Keep going rebuilding our own personal lives, our own spiritual lives, and that of this church as well. We're not helpless. Three things as we come to an end. Firstly, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Now, I'm not a jewelry kind of guy in general, um, but before Hannah and I got engaged, I had to sail through the choppy waters of jewelry shops in order to go and buy an engagement ring. Now, I went to a few in the Arndale in town, 
And uh, in each case, what happened was, you know, I went in the shop and a sales assistant sat me down, offered me a cup of tea, even a beer in one case. And I was shown various engagement rings. And, you know, these, these shops, they know what they're doing, don't they? They know what they're doing. So you'll notice that if you go into one, on the lighting, they've got loads of different lights. Because what it means is if you've got a jewel out, it'll have maximum sparkle when you're looking at it. And also, what they do is when they show you different rings, they'll, they'll bring them out in this little box, and they'll be like really dark felt material that the rings sit on. It just really brings out all the brilliance and the detail. And in the same way, I, I think the Israelites here in this passage, they, the darkness of their failure really brings out the brilliance of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now, the Israelites, they don't obey at all, do they? They screw up, they fail with every promise they've made. They do the very things that they said they wouldn't do. And yet Jesus Christ, when we look at his life, it is a life of perfect obedience. He never disobeyed. Never disobeyed. Can you imagine that? He had complete integrity. How hurtful is it when people, we find that they... They let us down. They, they say that they'll be there for us, and then they, they compromise. People who lack integrity frustrate us. If I just have to raise the phrase, dodgy builders, I think some of you will just get really angry because you've had experiences um, from tradesmen or people in all sorts of different professions who have not lived up to their standards. And yet we look at the Lord Jesus, and he's someone who never, never lacked integrity, he always obeyed, he was perfect. There's something more astonishing than that, though. Those who disobey bear the curse. That's what we've seen in this passage. And yet the Lord Jesus, for all his perfect obedience, he still took on the curse. And it wasn't for him. He did it out of love for us. See, we deserve, we deserve, we're under a curse for our disobedience. And let the Lord Jesus takes it away if we trust in him. And if you grasp that, if you see his, his beauty in his obedience and his love in, in bearing the punishment we deserve, that'll help you as you seek to rebuild. That'll help you keep going. It'll spur you on because he's worth it. He's so glorious. He's worth all our efforts. He's worth it. Secondly, he's with us. You know, reform can be a lonely job. Nehemiah, I imagine, was probably in the minority. I can imagine that as he sought to make all these changes in the city, he got a bit of pushback. People didn't always like what he was doing. I imagine he wasn't on Tobias' Christmas card list. And this chapter shows Nehemiah often praying to God, not really speaking to anyone else. He says things like, remember me, God. And in all of that, you know, it must have been a great relief to know that God was listening to him as he was effect- trying to do all these reforms, that God was there to listen. You know, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we are not alone either. The Lord Jesus dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. We are bound with him. And so we do not wrestle or fight against sin or decline by ourselves. When things are hard, we can talk to him. He's there alongside us. That will keep us from losing heart.
So he's worth it. He's with us, finally. He wins. Jesus wins. We've already seen that Jesus has a 100% track record in his obedience. And that also means that when he makes promises, he keeps them, and we can trust him. And this is good news for us, because one of his promises is this, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Not even dramatic, demonic, spiritual forces can get in the way of the Lord Jesus building his church through history and all over the world. He is calling people together from all different tribes and nations and tongues. He's completing that that work of bringing uh, his people together, his bride. And we know that one day, therefore, that mission will be complete. Nehemiah 13 is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that new creation where the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and there is that marriage feast between Jesus and his bride, the church. And we'll be there. We'll be part of it. Therefore, we can keep going. We've, we've called this series Rebuild. And, you know, we've talked about how we can be rebuilding ourselves. But we're not the chief builder. Jesus is the one who is building his church. He's devoted to his church more than we are. And therefore, we can trust him. We're just joining him him in his mission. That's what we're doing here. And that's going to spur us on, isn't it? He is the one doing the work. He is the one going to complete um, the joining together of his church. And we will be there on that final day with him, joined to him, and enjoying him and each other for all eternity in a renewed heavens and earth. He's worth it. He's with us. And he will win. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us not be a church where Jesus is on the outside, knocking on the door. Lord, may we be a church and may we be families and individuals who have the Lord Jesus close to us because we trust him and love him. Lord, help us to be faithful. These tidal forces of decline that happen over time, we feel powerless in the face of them. But Lord, we know that you give us your power through your Holy Spirit. So keep going. Lord, give us that perseverance. Bless us as a church, Lord, not just in the short term, not just the medium term, but the long term. We pray for the rest of the churches in this city that faithfully preach your name. Lord, sustain them. Help us keep going. Lord, help us be spurred on by your Son, his greatness, his power, his presence, and that assurance of his victory. In Jesus' name, amen.